The sermon text today is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported this to their master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had the mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You know, in this world, it is fundamental that we have conflict. We do. We hurt each other, and we are hurt by others. It happens all the time, and it will continue to happen. Um, have you ever said, I could never forgive you for that? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought, I cannot forgive you for that? Uh, perhaps you espouse the philosophy of John F. Kennedy who said, you can forgive your enemies, you just can't forget their names. Or Sigmund Freud said, uh, you must forgive your enemies, uh, but only after they're hanged. I mean, m many of us feel that way. We struggle with forgiving. We, we resent those who have sinned against us. We keep a list of the hurts that we've endured from other people. We feel justified to maintain a degree of anger and bitterness towards those who have repeatedly hurt us. I mean, consider your relationships just for a moment. You know, if you're married, um, to what degree has unresolved conflict created distance or perhaps distrust with your spouse? Or if you're not married, uh, what bitterness remains from past conversations or words spoken that has kind of stuck in your mind and and left you with frustration and anger. Did you realize that forgiveness is not a natural thing? The children of Adam do not forgive easily. And yet we live under this world, we live under the sun in this world, and so we're going to hurt each other. We need to learn how to forgive one another. And Jesus has a word for us from Matthew 18. Now, let me remind you of the context here. You know, Jesus in this entire chapter is really speaking about how we are to deal with each other. He speaks about our mutual responsibilities one to the other while we wait for him to return. So if you were to read it later today, you would see that 
Uh, he speaks about how we're to pursue humility and not seek to be greater than the other, how we're to seek the wanderer, how we're not to lead any astray, and how we're even to confront those who have sinned. That we're to confront them over the way they have hurt us or others, and we're to seek their repentance. And that's what brings us up to this passage. This passage on forgiveness. In other words, godly discipline brings about this call for godly forgiveness. So he's really trying to answer the question here, how do we deal with those who hurt us? How do we deal with those uh, from whom we've suffered? So what Jesus does is he gives us an answer. Now, the answer is pretty bold. It's love one another or forgive one another. To forgive one another. Now you saw the passage. It begins with a question, which is what we'll begin with. And, and then it has an answer. Jesus gives an answer. And then he gives a parable to give greater explanation to the answer. So there's a question and there's an answer. So let's begin with the question. The question which is Peter's, and that is found in verse 21. He says this, he says, um, So Peter came to him and said, How often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him as many as seven times? Now remember the context. So Jesus has just taught his disciples that when there is a brother or sister who is in sin, who has done things that are wrong, who have hurt people, you go and confront them, point out their sin, that they might repent and seek forgiveness. And then, of course, what our passage is, so you've got to forgive them. Now, Peter's asking the question on the heels of that, saying, well, how many times do I have to do that? I, I mean, if he sins and repents, I forgive him, and then he sins and repents, like, how, how long will this go on? Now, basically, where's the line in the sand? Where can I go or, or what number do I hit before I finally say, no more forgiveness? I don't think Peter's being rude here. I think probably in Peter's mind is a degree that justice probably puts some limits on the amount of mercy we give. So how far do I go? He says seven times. According to rabbinical tradition, it would have been three times. You forgive him once, twice, three times, and after that, you're not required to forgive him anymore. And so Peter went beyond that. Do I forgive him seven times? Well, of course, Jesus' answer is staggering. It's staggering. It's breathtaking. He, he says in 22, he says, I don't say to you up to seven times, but 77 times. Now, don't be overly literal here. He's not saying on the 78th time you can then say enough is enough. Uh, what Jesus is doing is he's showing us a new paradigm of forgiveness. It, it, it's not in quantitative terms. You, you don't get to 77 and then stop. In other words, he's saying in a word that we are to forgive without measure. Without measure. Now, I, I know we probably need to step back right now and take a deep breath. And in your mind is coming up all these objections and problems and why this can't be the teaching. And this is the teaching of Jesus. It's often leaving us just kind of boggled in mind as to how we can do this. I do want to add a few caveats, though, just to understand the context of this command to forgive without measure. But I want you to hear me say that first, that Jesus is saying that we are to forgive without measure. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Well, let me tell you a few things what I don't mean by that. I don't think to forgive without measure, I don't think that means that there are no consequences. You know, that, that, that because we may forgive, uh, that there should be no consequences that come along with the nature of the sin. Uh, there are consequences. You, you see it in the story of David and Bathsheba. Right? David commits the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, 
And, and when confronted by Nathan the prophet, he says he repents and he says you're forgiven, but the sword will never leave your home. You've introduced conflict into this family now that will always be a part of it. So to say that we forgive doesn't mean that we absolve people from their consequences. Uh, to say that we forgive without measure doesn't mean that the state doesn't do the work that they're called to do, which is to uphold a good and ordered society. So the fact that um, you know that someone thieves or murders or or rapes those things still need to be dealt with, but it's the justice of the state. Uh, here, I think he's speaking more to personal grievances and even within the kingdom. That this, but the state will bring about. The state has to maintain order. That's why God has ordained it. I also think that to say that we're to forgive without measure, I don't think he's saying that. To forgive means everything returns to normal, depending upon the nature of forgiveness, depending upon the depth and the length of the wound, and, and depending upon the continuing threat, for example, with a husband that would be physically abusive with his wife who repents and asks for forgiveness. It doesn't mean we just go back to normal and do business as we did business before. There's more involved in that. And to say that we forgive without measure is not to say that you forget it or that you can immediately grant forgiveness, or that there isn't the residue of anger in your soul. No, when he says to forgive, I think he's saying that you're surrendering your right to exact revenge or repayment. Uh, to say, I forgive you, is to absorb the cost of the hurt that they have brought to you. To say that I forgive, it's not the same as, well, that's just the way they behave sometimes. Excusing and forgiving is not the same thing. Or just putting up with him because that's just the way. Tolerating is not forgiving. Forgiving is to understand that this offense has come and I'm going to absorb it and I'm not going to exact revenge. I'm going to surrender my right. In fact, I'm going to begin to humanize the person who has offended me. I'm not going to vilify them. I'm not going to treat them as a beast. But I'm going to humanize them. And by God's grace, I'm going to seek their good. I'm going to seek their welfare. Uh, to forgive is to do more than forgive, but it is to pursue reconciliation. Uh, there has to be, I want you to understand, though, that there has to be a degree of repentance for full reconciliation to be. I can forgive a person. Remember, it takes two to quarrel. It takes two to reconcile. So, so you can forgive but we still seek the repentance of the other person. And we see this in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 17. When I say parallel passage, I mean it's the same story recorded in a different gospel in a slightly different way. Could have been the same story or could have been another time that Jesus taught the same truth. But in Luke chapter 17, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. So there has to be repentance. Otherwise, there isn't the transaction. There has to be the repentance and then the forgiveness given. Well, you say, what about if they don't repent? What about if they don't ask for forgiveness? How can I walk in forgiveness with them? Well, you can with an attitude of forgiveness. This is what we call attitudinal forgiveness. In other words, if they don't seek, if they don't admit their wrongdoing, if they don't confess their sin to you, you can still rid yourself of the bitterness toward them and have an attitude uh, 
that is postured ready to forgive, even stating it. We are unreconciled, but I want to forgive. I want to reconcile. But we have to identify the nature of the sin so we can still have an attitude of forgiveness. Now, this is essential in marriage. Listen, in marriage, there is no other relationship that is so prone to hurting one another. Just the proximity that you share with your spouse, but just the intimacy and the awareness of each other's weakness and the high expectations that we put on one another. There is no relationship that is more rife with the possibility of conflict. Wives, you know, your husbands can wound you by just commenting on the beauty of another woman, her attractiveness. Or the fact that they may be dynamic at the office and yet they may be very passive at home. Or they may be spiritual at church, unspiritual at home. All kinds of ways that we can wound and hurt one another. And, and, and husbands, same way. Your wives can, can crush you with a harsh word, a lack of appreciation, a lack of gratitude, sexual distance, or pouring all of her life into the children. But when it comes to you, they're just so fatigued. There's all kinds of ways we can wound each other. And not just married, singles. I mean, they bear the same threat in relationships with harsh words, being excluded, being ignored, or people saying silly things that they haven't thought through what they've said, but can be very, very hurtful. So what level of unresolved conflict do you have in your marriage or in your relationships? What have you done with it? Why? How have you made peace with it? Jesus has words for us that I know for many of you it feels like it moves past kindness into dangerous. To forgive without measure. What can he mean by that? Well, that's what the point of the parable. So Peter asks the question, how many times do I have to forgive? The answer is you forgive without measure. Now, I, I put those caveats in there to help kind of get over some of the internal objections you may be having right now. But he says without measure. But let me explain how the parable really brings this to color. So the parable, you heard it. Let me just talk to you about that parable in three scenes, because that's really what the parable is. The first scene is you're introduced to a king. This is a good king. You get the sense he's a good, he's a powerful king. He is rightly and righteously bringing his servants before him for an accountability. This king is obviously God, God calling his people before himself. Now, we, we meet this first servant. The first servant has a 10,000 debt load, 10,000 talents. Now, remember, one talent is equal to 6,000 denarii. I know that doesn't help you, but this will. One denarius was the wage for one day for a common worker. So what he's saying is that one talent would be 6,000 work days or 20 work years. So to pay off one talent, you'd have to work for 20 years. He owns 10,000 talents, so he has to work for 200,000 years. Now, it's laughable. It's inconceivable. You can, and that's the point of the parable, is to show us this astronomical debt that could never be repaid. Now, you see what the servant says in verse 26. He says, be patient with me and I'll pay back everything. Be patient with me. Now, does he not recognize the nature of his debt? Is he so ignorant? Is he so irresponsible? We're not told. We're not told. But what we are told is that it says in 27, it was out of pity the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. 
He forgave the debt. That word forgive means to cut away, to release, to just, to just let it go. And that's what the king did. So you just have this amazing experience. 200,000 years of forced labor has just been erased off the books. That astronomical debt has been removed. You'd think it'd be a point of rejoicing. He'd never want to leave the king. He'd want to stick with someone who is so magnanimous, so generous. But then we shift to scene two. So scene two now is that this now debt-free servant goes and it says, looks for a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii, which would be about four months' worth of work. Not a small amount of money, but definitely could be repaid. And he looks for him. He doesn't look for him to share the good news that, listen, I just got two, I got 10,000 talents removed. He doesn't, he doesn't look to share the good news, uh, but he actually looks to exact payment on the debt that was owed him. 100 denarii. Now, the irony of ironies is that the second service uses, servant uses the exact, literally, almost to a T, the same Greek language in asking for patience, asking for more time, asking for pity. And yet this first servant who had all that debt removed says refuses and throws him into prison. He exacts the punishment on this servant that he was so mercifully released from. It's a sad scene. Well, scene three, all the other servants hear about it. They report it to the master. The master summons that servant, that first servant, back and rebukes him, you wicked servant. And of course, gives to him the punishment that he had been delivered from. And then Jesus, which he doesn't always do in parables, he applies this parable to us. Look what he says in 35. He says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's using this parable, and he's, he's using a parable about debt to explain the nature of sin. Now, that makes sense to us, right? Because if I sin against you, in a way I do owe you, right? If I say something really rude to you, then you might think, you owe me an apology for that. It, it, sin causes a debt. Sin causes this loss. You know, the, the offended party feels as if something is owed to them to make it right. And so Jesus is using this parable of debt to show us about the nature of sin. Obviously, the king is God, and the first servant is, is you, or it's me. And, and, and we have this astronomical debt that we don't even fully understand. And yet the very grace of God wipes it. He wipes it clean. We have sinned against God, and our sin against God is a debt, right? That's the, the Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts. You see their debt and sin equated again. And, and so he's saying that all of us, we have this astronomical debt before God, and God in his mercy has forgiven it. So then how do we then withhold forgiveness from fellow servants who have had their debt removed as well how in any world could we withhold forgiveness from them? How could we do it? I mean, doesn't the true disciple of Christ want to walk in forgiveness? I mean, do, do you not see it as radically inconsistent to rest and rejoice and to sing about the forgiveness that we've been given, but then not to turn it 
and to share it with others who have sinned against us? I mean, it, 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 we do well to consider our radical debt before God uh, so that we find, we find the ability to forgive. Again, what unresolved conflict do you have? Now, before you, before you think in your mind, but you don't know what happened, and you don't know what I did, and you don't know what he did, and I know in your mind we begin processing on, we want to try to wiggle out of this thing. We don't like the way it feels. We don't like what it pushes us into. Now, I do realize that many of the sins that you have endured are very complicated. And that's why I put the caveats at the beginning. I, I do recognize some of, some of the sins are, you know, they're very difficult. And they cannot meet, they cannot reach perhaps that full reconciliation. But we are still looking for a posture of forgiveness to people. Well, how do we do this? How can we move in this? Well, let me give you, so we had a question and, and, and we've heard an answer. So let me give you five things that I'd like you to consider about moving down a pathway of forgiveness. Five things. How do we do it? How do we move from bitterness and, and anger and, and legitimate hurt? You have been hurt. There's no doubt about that. How do we move from that? And, and by the way, this is, this is also true for the, the inverted posture. In other words, perhaps you've sinned against somebody. You know, you've sinned and you need to ask for forgiveness. It might not just be you needing to grant forgiveness, but you may need to ask for it and seek it. So, so five things moving down this path to forgive without measure. First would be we have to grasp the enormity of our own sin. We have to try to understand. You see in the first servant, his unforgiveness was tethered to his inability to know the debt that was forgiven. He didn't understand the astronomical debt of a sin against God. You know, we have this natural ability, and, and, and every time I bring this up, I get about half the place smiling at me when I say, you know, we have this incredible ability to justify and explain why we do things, the very things that we find so offensive in other people. We, we can just, we identify their sins with this laser accuracy, and yet when it comes to us, the guy flying down the road, that you, you judge him for being a hazard to people, when you're late for a meeting, you got to fly down the road, don't you? i got to go to the meeting. I mean, really, it makes sense for me when I do it. We, we, we fail to grasp the enormity of our sin. And here's the problem. When you fail to understand the enormity of your own sin, you are either ungrateful to God for what he's done, or you become self-righteous towards others who are not as good as you. Don't you see this in the story of Jonah? I mean, Jonah is called by God. He's called by God to go to the, the city of Nineveh to preach repentance to them, and he is just mad about it. Why? Because they're such wicked people. They're such sinners. They don't deserve the forgiveness of God. Failing to see his own need for forgiveness. Failing to see his own self-righteousness. The way we grow in the enormity of understanding the enormity of our sin is to look at the holiness of God. You cannot understand the nature of sin apart from the character of God. If you just look at sin as some sort of societal impact, that's why he said, but nobody's hurt, therefore it's not a sin. If we don't sense any horizontal hurt, it's not a sin. It's consensual. We're okay. One of the prayers that I've returned to again and again in the Valley of Vision 
is this prayer. Let me never forget that the heinousness of sin lies not so much in the nature of sin as in the greatness of the person sinned against. We have to see sin as it's an affront to God who has given us all these things. But we just struggle with getting the enormous. How often do you consider? How often do you kind of real, you know, watch the tape of your life and consider what God has forgiven you for? How often do you consider that? Because, you know, the longer you are in Christianity, the more righteous you feel. And, and I guess on some terms, you probably are growing in greater righteousness. I trust so by the Spirit of God. But we often look at our lives, we're better now, and we forget what we've been delivered from. It, there is value in going back to that and considering that. It, it's, it's okay to be amazed at your own sin. Maybe you need to ask God, show me the wickedness of my heart, like he says in Psalm 139. Maybe we should ask God for that. But I'm telling you, if you don't, now I know many of you may be, some of you may be saying, here we are talking about sin again. We love talking about sin in this church. I, I don't like to talk about sin, but I do feel that it's fundamental to understanding the grace that we have received. And I think you see that in the parable. I think the parable makes clear that if you don't get the debt load that was removed, it's going to be evidenced in the way you treat other people. And I think about the parable of Simon, you know, when Jesus was at the home of Simon. Simon was a Pharisee and Jesus was having dinner with him. And Simon really has some questions about Jesus. And so that woman comes to Jesus. She's a prostitute. She's crying on his feet. She's drying his feet with her hair. And Simon's looking at him like, what kind of prophet are you to have such a woman attending to you that way? And of course, Jesus knows what he's thinking. And so he brings this parable about he who is forgiven much, he who is forgiven little loves little, and he who is forgiven much loves much. That's what he says. He says, for this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So to understand the depth of what we've been forgiven seems to parlay directly into how we can love and forgive one another. So that's the first step. Grasp the enormity of your sin. Secondly, would you marvel with me over the kindness of God and forgiveness? Marvel. I mean marvel. I mean like Chin dropping to the floor, marveling over his forgiveness. You know, just being amazed that he would forgive us for our sins. You know, this, it's interesting with this first servant not really understanding the depth of his sin. Notice, wh why did God, what did God do? Well, look what he says. He says this. He says, out of pity, the master released him. He released him. That's a term used in secular Greek to set a prisoner free. He's been set free. But why would he do it? The man didn't understand it. It wasn't in the sterling character of the servant that warranted the forgiveness. I mean, he was irresponsible, amassing up all that debt and then thinking that he could pay it back. Now, Charles Spurgeon said about this man, he says the the uh, request for more time wasn't worth the breath that carried it. I mean, he couldn't pay it back in any way, shape, or form. So why would he do it? Well, it's the character of God. It's the unilateral mercy of God. This is why we're forgiven. It is in the heart of God to extend mercy to sinners. We don't often see God that way. We see him more sitting on the throne, kind of distant, aloof, cold. We don't see God 
just being, just abounding in kindness to sinners. We think that we've got to measure up. We've got to do our deeds. We've got to do our stuff. And then we can be in good shape with them. You don't see the character of God abounding in mercy. It's incredible. We, we, we ought to return again and again to this parable just to re recalibrate on what we think about God. It's out of his mercy. And notice the goodness of this king. He didn't give what the servant asked. What the servant ask? More time. He says, I'll just forgive you. He goes well beyond what the servant asked for. Well beyond. He gave so much more to him. Now, in this passage, we don't hear anything about the atonement. We don't hear anything about a cross. We don't hear anything about a substitute. But you know it points to it. It's told by Jesus. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to furnish the means through which God can be just and the justifier of those who have sinned against him and those with faith in the Son. Jesus knows this is pointing to the gospel. He didn't wait for the servant to start working off his debt to make sure he's got some buy-in, and then he brings forgiveness. You know, in Romans 5, 8, when Paul says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. You can't forget that. It was while we were sinners that God chose to forgive us. You didn't kind of get there. That's what we do with our kids oftentimes. We want them to put in some money and then we help them buy the car. We want There's some good parenting technique in that, no doubt. But God doesn't do salvation that way. It's just this unilateral dump of grace upon us. So let's marvel. How often do you consider the dimensions of his love for you? How often do you consider the incredible nature of his forgiveness? You know, I'm convinced that if you really savor what he has done for you, it begins to move toward the direction of others. One author said it this way. He says, I've learned <clears throat> that it's possible to go on holding a grudge if your faith simply means that you've looked back to the cross and concluded you're off the hook. A faith that looks back, though, not merely to discover that we're off the hook, but also to see and savor the kind of God who offers a future of endless reconciled tomorrows in fellowship with him. That kind of satisfied fellowship with such a forgiving God is crucial for our being forgiving people. Have to savor that work of God. That's the second thing, to consider the glory of God, his unbounded mercy to us. And, and you've got to turn off everything electric and just think it. Uh, thirdly, you have to act in faith. You have to act in faith toward this. So what do I mean by that? I, I mean that you and I are really not capable of just walking in this kind of forgiveness, particularly some of the great hurts that we've embraced or endured. But you have to act in faith. What I mean by that is you have to move with the offer of forgiveness, even though you don't feel it, but you believe that he will give you the grace to extend it. You have to act in faith. Now, why do I say this? Well, in that parallel passage in Luke chapter 17, I didn't read the whole section for you. So let me just read the whole thing. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The next verse. In the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, they're saying, I don't know how we're going to do it. I, I, I don't know how I can forgive those. A long-standing, 
bitterness has developed over the hurts that have come to you. I, I don't know how to do it. You have to increase our faith. God, you've got to help us confidence that you will enable us to do it. So I, I went back, and when Spurgeon preached that passage in Luke, he preached it in October 8 of 1876. The next week, here's how he introduced his, his sermon. Uh, the sermon of last Sabbath morning, in which I earnestly endeavored to inculcate the doctrine of overcoming evil with good and the frank and the full forgiveness of all injuries for Christ's sake, has raised much discussion. I know that it startled a great many of you and that you have a great many questions among yourselves as to whether such precepts are practicable by ordinary Christians. At that, I am not at all surprised, because when the Lord preached the same doctrine, his disciples were astonished that the apostles exclaimed in surprise, Lord, increase our faith. So I get the difficulty. I mean, I have no idea the depth to which you probably have been wounded. Uh, but they reacted the same way. How can we do it? We walk by faith. God is honored in faith. Because we, we're called to forgive from the heart. And to truly forgive means, and, and, and I love these four promises of Ken Sandy, uh, to forgive means I'm not going to dwell on the incident. I'm not going to indulge in ill thoughts of a person. I'm not going to bring the incident up again. I'm not going to use it against them, manipulating, controlling, moving and managing them. Third, I will not talk about this to others about the incident. I'm not going to spin it, and I'm not going to introduce it into conversations so that you might be lowered in their, in their eyes. And, and fourth, you will not let this incident stand between us and hinder our personal relationship. I'm going to put myself in a posture to be possibly hurt again uh, with certain caveats, but so that our relationship can grow. To forgive that way from the heart, it has to be from the power of God. So thirdly, act in faith. So it isn't waiting on feelings that I feel forget. No, it's God, I'm going to trust that you will give me the grace to forgive with the same forgiveness I've received. Okay, fourth would be to consider the last day. You see a picture of it here in the judgment of the servant. It's the last day he's brought before the king. He did not forgive. And so he says, so the Lord will do to you if you don't forgive one another from, a, from your heart. Uh, there is a warning here. Now, I want you to see this idea that you must forgive, you must forgive to be forgiven. It's not meritorious. It's not quid pro quo. Okay, I'll give a little forgiveness. I'll get a little forgiveness. No, the forgiveness that you're giving is more, it's not meritorious. It's more evidential. It evidences a work of grace in your life when you walk in that kind of forgiveness. It evidences that you have been forgiven. Heaven is filled with forgiven people. People that can't forgive are not going to be with a group of people that have been forgiven and forgive. George Herbert, the British poet, he says, He cannot forgive, he that cannot forgive others, breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass if he would ever reach heaven. For everyone has need to be forgiven. So, so consider that last day. I mean, if you need to, give yourself the note from the doctor that says you've got six months to live. Or give them the note. Remind yourself that that day is going to come. And, and, and move 
toward thinking in that direction. And then last, the last, the fifth point in terms of measure, you know, forgiving without measure, develop, is rejoice over the fact that we get the privilege of extending forgiveness. It is a privilege to us to forgive those who have wounded us. We display the gospel. We, we offer reconciliation. We offer a chance at restoration and a return to the community. We get to display the gospel. We get to be an image bearer of Christ. Now think about when Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Why? Because we look like him. We look like him. We get to image Christ to people when we offer forgiveness. And we draw them back to us. Just like when we repent to Christ, we don't feel his cold hand waiting until we repent enough. Now again, I, I know that this that your lives are much more complicated than I maybe have given weight to. But here's what I would ask you to do. Seek God first. If there are things in you that you've walked in, things you've said, attitudes you've had, that need to be confessed to people, and you need to seek them to forgive you. It's always better when we self-confront than when we have to be confronted by others. So confront yourself. Take your own soul to task. Say, God, reveal to me if I've wronged or hurt someone, particularly starting in your marriage, but extending to your relationships, both in your family, but also in this church, other Christians. These principles do apply outside the church. They don't apply, I think, as clearly but they do to the church, to the kingdom dwellers. So seek, and then ask God, are there people that I am maintaining a distance from, keeping a cold shoulder to, and just kind of avoiding because I really don't like to be with them? Are there those people that I need to begin to pray for, to pray about, and perhaps even to go up to them and repent and to seek their forgiveness? Uh, for how you've held, or to extend forgiveness to a past hurt that you haven't fully forgiven. I think this could be redemptive in the life of this church. I think it would move us towards displaying more of the image of God uh, to each other. It will be furthering our appreciation for the gospel, not just for our own sins being forgiven, but for the fellowship that's engendered through tighter relationships, a deeper love for one another. Remember, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Let's display it in the way that we can walk in forgiveness with one another. Let's just take a moment and ask God for clarity and wisdom in the application of this text, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment.